0: John 13, go to John 13 if you have a a copy of God's word. If you don't, there is a little piece of paper inside of your bulletin that has some notes and uh, today's scripture that we're going to read, and we'll walk through it together. I should have introduced myself earlier. If you're new to church, I'm Pastor Mark. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and we're delighted that you're here. We're going to walk through the first 17 verses of John 13. We have been now 40 weeks walking through John's gospel. It seems like a long time, does it not? Uh, we've covered 12 chapters of John's gospel, and we're, we're more than halfway through this, and uh, almost to... We're not almost to the end, but we're getting closer every single week. So uh, here we are, John 13. This is the account of Jesus in the upper room having communion, having the last supper uh, with his disciples the night before his crucifixion. All of the gospel writers account the story for us, and they each give us a little bit of a different angle. What we know if we put all the stories together is that John tells us about after they had already eaten, And Luke tells us that the disciples kind of immediately began to argue about who was the best and who was the greatest and who was number one. And kind of in that argument, Jesus does something to illustrate how they should live their lives. And that's what we're going to see in John 13. Look at verse number one. It says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should not depart out of this, or he should depart out of this world to the Father, "...having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end." Amazing statement about the love of Jesus, that he loved them to the moon and back, or he loved them to the fullest, to the maximum. Verse 2 says, "...supper being ended, the devil having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he was come from God and went to God, he rises from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. Now, John's about to account for us that Jesus puts this towel on, not just because he wants to change his outfit, but because he's going to serve and he's going to wash the disciples' feet. And I could spend a whole sermon on these first few verses, but the point of the first few verses is to say that when Jesus washed his disciples' feet and he served them, he didn't get in the middle of that and say, wait a second, this isn't my job. What am I doing? I forgot who I was. The point of what John is trying to get across is that Jesus knows full well the whole time he's washing his disciples' feet, that the Father has put all things into his hand and that it's his time to die, that the redemption of man is at hand. He knows full well that Judas was the betrayer. He knows full well that he's from God and going to God, that he's divine and on a heavenly mission. None of that is lost on him when he grabs a towel. All of that he's cognizant of, he's fully aware of. And John says, here's what happened. Verse five, after that, he poureth water into a basin, began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, what I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. So Jesus begins to wash the feet. He has a towel around him and and he comes to Peter and and Peter says, Jesus, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus says, look, you, you don't really understand what I'm doing now, but you'll get it later. You'll understand eventually. Then Peter says, thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. So then Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. So Peter says, you ain't touching me, Jesus. You ain't washing my feet. Jesus says, I'm, I'm going to. You're not with me. All right, give me a bath then. And, and Peter is, is hot and cold and kind of all over the place. He's his, his typical self. And Jesus says in verse 10, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. For he knew who should betray him, therefore he said, ye are not all clean. So what he says basically is, is Peter, you're, you're clean, you've already had a bath, you don't, I don't you need to wash your whole body, I just need to wash your feet. But not everybody here is clean. And he says this metaphorically, speaking of Judas who would betray him, saying that basically that there's, there's a scoundrel in the room, there's a dirty dog in the room, and I, I'm aware of this. Verse number 12, So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, so it's all done, he says unto them, Know ye what I have done unto you. Guys, you get it? You understand now? And we don't have any response from them, but Jesus is going to explain it. And he says to them, in verse number 13, Ye call me Master and Lord. Ye say, well, for so I am. Look, you're right. I am master. I am Lord. Absolutely accurate. And he says, if I then your Lord and master have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Now, this is a, a big moment because in this culture, there's no way that you wash each other's feet. That was the lowest of the lowest task. And, and there's no way that the, that the, the Lord, the master, the, the rabbi, the, the high one would wash someone's feet. I mean, this is just an astounding moment. I have not studied all of uh, Greco-Roman literature or all of Jew, ancient Jewish literature, but everyone that I have studied who, who spent their life studying that have said they, they have yet to find any other account in all of Greco-Roman or ancient Jewish literature of a rabbi or a master or someone in that place of authority washing someone else's feet. You just can't find it. It never happened. But Jesus does this, and he says to them in verse 16, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The servant's not greater than his Lord, neither is he that sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happier are you if you do them. So here's what happens. Jesus does this and more or less says, This is your example. You should do as I've done. Now, we've been told most of our lives to live by the golden rule, which isn't a bad rule. The golden rule is, let's see if you can finish it, do unto others as you would have them, right? How you want someone to treat, you treat them. Now, more often than not, we don't live by that. We live by our own sort of set of rules. I wrote a couple of them down. Sometimes we live by doing to others as they deserve to be done unto. However I feel you've treated me or you deserve, that's what I'll do. Do unto others as they do unto you. Not as I would have them do, but whatever you give, I'll just give back to you in kind. It's pretty easy to do that. Sometimes I live this way. Do unto others as your mood would have it. Whatever I feel like doing, that's what I'll do today. Do unto others as to get them to see things your way. Ever been there trying to manipulate and I'll do this so you can be on on my team and on my page? Jesus says none of that. He says, I want to give you the rule to live by. I'll give you a rule. Here it is. Do unto others as I have done unto you. He says to his disciples, to the followers of Jesus, followers of Jesus, do unto others as Christ has done for you. Now, I have a love-hate relationship with this principle. I love it, first of all, because if you were to take all of the Bible and just ring it out, one of the major truths that would come if you just ring it out was that followers of Jesus are, are to serve. I mean, that's all through the Bible. It's everywhere. So I love it for that reason. I also love it because it's simple. It's not all that complicated. I hate it because it's convicting. I hate it because I know for me, it's very difficult to live this out sometimes. It's very difficult for me to actually do as Jesus has done to me. But Jesus calls his followers to a different standard of living. And he says, I don't want you to do as they have done. I want you to do as I have done. Take your cues from me. Treat others as I have treated you. Don't respond in kind. Don't respond in opposite kind. I want you to get focused in on how I'm treating you and let that be your standard. Let that be your model. And Jesus kind of has a unique campaign slogan at this point, which is, guys, come be like me, become a servant. I want you to serve. This was very different than the ancient rulers, the Caesars and the Herods of Jesus's day. No one ruled like this. Even centuries later, after the Caesars were were done crushing people and demolishing people, Shakespeare wrote in his famous play, Julius Caesar, that the leaders of the day, the Caesars, were people that, that were very feared. They were giants. And they basically played whack-a-mole with their people that you would peek your head up just in a scared little way for a second and then they would just smash you back down. He said it a bit more poetically and, and fluidly than that. But that's basically what he said. I'm paraphrasing. That you Don't mess with the Caesar for a second. If you're a threat, you will, you will get crushed. Now, it's sad to say that leadership is still often abused all these centuries later. We get frustrated, do we not, with our politicians who run to serve us and then they get in office and it seems like all they do is serve themselves and protect themselves and try to get the next campaign going and, and take advantage of all the luxury dinners and, and the Cadillac pension plan all to serve us. We get frustrated with that, don't we? We get frustrated with employers who treat their employees like a number rather than a person. We get frustrated with parents who take their position of love and authority and use that for abuse. We get frustrated even with pastors. Pastors are not exceptions to this rule. There there are pastors who exist to isolate themselves and make their own little kingdom and basically use their people for, for their own agenda and their own good. But Jesus doesn't exploit his position. Jesus serves and he says, this is your model Don't just stop at doing as you would have others do unto you. I want you to do as I've done unto you. Take your cues from me. So that's not complicated. Jesus says, more or less, I love you. I serve you. So go do that for others. It's it's not that complicated. So I had to ask myself, why is this such a struggle for me? If if it's not, if it's pretty simple and it's not complicated, why do I most days struggle with this? Why do I oftentimes hear people, you know, giving excuses? I hear my own internal monologue, giving myself excuses of, of why I can't do this. So I've, I've kind of thought through the most common excuses of why we don't do this. And in so doing, I think the text will attack these and help us see that they're really not valid. And, and we should live this out. So here are my top five excuses for why people don't do as Christ has done for them and serve other people. Excuse number one. I call it the the pick and choose excuse. It goes like this. I'll serve people if I feel they're worthy. Anytime I hit on a topic like this, inevitably somebody's going to shake my hand after church and say something like this. Pastor, I mean, that, that sounded fantastic. I wish the world was that way. But, you know, how far do I have to go? Like, aren't there times where there's an exception to this rule? I mean, aren't there situations that are so sticky, so messy, so gross, so just just so crazy that I don't have to live this out, that I don't have to serve? If someone hurts me bad enough, don't I get a hall pass? Now, I'll save you the conversation. You don't have to shake my hand because Jesus answers this. There's a big emphasis in the whole text that we read some of it and we'll read some of it next week. 13.2, it says that Judas was going to betray him. Jesus is washing Peter's feet and says, I know one of you, a dirty dog in here, is going to betray me. If we, We'll read next week that he'll continue on that and say, "Judas is going to betray me. Then he's going to tell Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me. Mr. Fanboy, you're going to deny me then all the rest of the followers within a couple hours are going to forsake him and run away as cowards. Now it's in that moment, okay? Not in the moment of here's all my followers and all my fans and all my friends, but in the moment of that one's gonna betray me and that one's gonna deny me and the rest of them are gonna run away like scared little rabbits. In that moment, Jesus decides that he's going to serve them. In that moment, Jesus decides that he's gonna take the towel. And I think in so doing, he teaches us that there's not a limit to this. There's not a cap on it. And, what, and honestly, if you're having a relational difficulty, that, those are the people you don't want to serve. You're having a, a family thing. You're having a work thing. You're having a spouse thing or a child thing or a, or a roommate thing or, or a peer thing or a student thing. And, and you don't want to serve, you feel like there is hurt or they're against you, that's when you need to serve the most. That's when this principle will help you the most. Because it's very difficult for you to stay angry and bitter at someone when you make the decision, I'm going to move in their direction, I'm going to serve them. It's very difficult for them to stay angry and bitter at you when you make the decision that I'm going to move in their direction, I'm going to serve them. This actually will help it will be a salve that you can put on relational wounds and it will do damage to your own self centeredness. This will clamp down on and eat away at the self centeredness in your own heart and in my heart that you want to, to have eaten away. You want it gone. When you decide to serve someone, anyone without limits, that there's not exceptions, and you're not just gonna pick and choose and say, you're easy to, but you're not, so I'll do the easy and not the tough, but you just decide, I'm gonna serve regardless, that will help you. This is exactly what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. He put it in terms of love, but he said, if you love those people that love you, you don't get a reward. That's not special. Everybody does that. But when you love your enemy, and you pray for them that that curse you, and and, and those that despitefully use you and persecute you, you, you serve them and you bless them, then there's reward. Then there's good. So there's not a limit. You can't pick and choose. I also hear this excuse very often, the not my move excuse. It goes like this. I would serve if they asked me. Ball's in their court, right? I mean, I'm ready and willing, reporting for duty, captain service. I'm here. I'm ready to do this. But no one's come up to me. No one's given me a job. No one's asked me to. I'm just waiting on them. But we know it doesn't work that way. Because when someone comes and asks you to serve, it's never the job you wanted them to ask you for, right? You wanted them to ask you to, I don't know, uh, play the bagpipes for for such and such. There actually is a bagpipe player in here. I was trying to pick something that would not hit anybody. Paul, Luke, I'm sorry. I got you. Uh, You you think they're going to ask you to do this grand thing, but instead they ask you to vacuum. Oh, you're giving me the little menial, the low tash. You're just giving me that stuff. We never enjoy it more when someone asks us to serve and then we do it, we would rather see it on our own and do it ourselves. Spouses, isn't this true at home? Whatever a household chores, however it's divided up in your house, okay? If you do it on your own, you feel real proud of yourself. If your spouse has to ask you to do it, don't you cringe a little bit? Don't you bristle at that a little bit? I'm the only one. I don't mind taking out the trash. I honestly don't, I have no qualms with taking out the trash, but if Maggie asks me to take out the trash, I'll still do it and I, and I won't be bitter or bent out of shape about it, but there's something inside me a little bit that just bristles, that, that doesn't want to do it then, right? Or the indirect ask, how many of you have been there where it's not really an ask, it's just a statement and you're supposed to interpret that my wife never does this, but I'm sure, I'm sure you, you all do this in your marriage, okay? That, you know, hey, did you know the trash was getting kind of full, Thank you for the random factoid. Yeah, did you know I was watching the Steelers? Like, you know, you ever been there? When I take out the trash and someone asks me to, I'm, I don't like it that much. But if I do it on my own, it's an event. I brought a trash can with me today to illustrate this just so you can see. Take notes, okay? Take notes on how you should do this. If you're doing something on your own, dishes, trash, it doesn't matter. They all work. Laundry. Just, I do it loudly, Right? Like there's, there's no part of me. The kids could be sleeping. It doesn't matter. There's no part of me that's going to be, you know, just gently taking this off. I'm going to take the, oh, that's, what did you put in that? Then you get the new bag. The trick is to pop it like eight times. Just keep shaking it and shaking it and shaking it. Play the Rocky music, get it going, right? Because people need to know I chose to do this willingly, right? The point is that when you do something willingly, it's a whole lot better than if someone has to ask you to do it. You like it more. You like it more. And to say, you know what, I would do this if someone asked me, it makes the assumption, well, I don't see any needs. I don't see anything that needs to be done. I'm surrounded by people with no needs. I'm surrounded by nothing needs to be, that needs to be done. There, there's no task. There's nothing here. I wish I could see it. Like, Seriously? Just lift your head up for two seconds. We're surrounded by people with needs. And in a a community, there are things to do. You shouldn't have to be asked. Now, if someone asks, you'd be willing to do it. Yeah, sure. But better yet, just do it on your own. Just do it on your own. Don't fall into the, well, I I would, you know, I'm an awesome servant if someone comes and asks me. Just do it. That's a Nike slogan. They should learn something from me. (laughs) The clock excuse. Excuse number three, I don't have time, Right? How many of you are busy in the month of December, right? It's a busy month. There's a lot to do. There's lots of parties, lots of things going on. And if we're not careful, we'll, we'll tell ourselves, you know, I don't have time to serve. I'd love to. Sounds great. It'd be a great world if everyone served. But I don't have time. Now, I'll be brief, but for a second, I just want, to pick, I want you to picture yourself standing before Jesus one day. And Jesus says, hey, you know, I, I served you. I loved you. I died for you. I, I paid for your sins. I, I served you. And I kind of expected you to do the same. Why didn't you serve? Man, Jesus, I didn't have time. So Jesus pulls out your, your, the settings from your smartphone and he goes to the usage screen. He says, man, you know, let's just pick a week. I don't know. Week of December the 8th, 2019. Uh, you had nine hours for social media, according to this. You had six hours to talk on the phone with friends or family or whatever that was. I also have the data from Netflix and Hulu and your cable and, and Xbox Live and, and Disney Plus. I have that. Let's put it all together. Here. Man, you managed to watch your shows. You managed to watch the game. You managed to play the game. You man- what happened? Right? The reality is we're busy, okay? I'm, I'm not saying we're not busy. I am saying we all too often fill our schedules with things that are trivial, and then we use it as a lame excuse to say I was too busy to do something that was important. I'm not against you having fun and doing things at all. If, if, if you like rifle hunting and you fill up all your tags every year and you want to go pick up bow hunting and learn it, have at it. If your kids are in basketball or soccer or gymna- gymnastics and you want to teach them Chinese and, and the cello at the same time, Okay. None of those things are inherently bad, but if you clutter your schedule with all that stuff and then try to tell me or yourself or God that, you know, I just don't have time, that just doesn't work. It doesn't work. We, we use that so often, but it, it's just not true. It's a matter of priority. I'll give you excuse number four. This is one of my favorite, the doormat excuse. People will walk all over me if I serve. Pastor, yeah, I mean, I can serve some people and maybe my kids or something like that. But I mean, even my spouse, like they just, they'll take advantage of me and they'll just, I'll just keep serving, serving, serving. And they'll never reciprocate. Or, or, I mean, my job, my coworkers, my boss, it's a dog eat dog world. This isn't reality. That's not practical. If, if you want to move up the corporate ladder, if, if you want to do that, I mean, it sounds nice to serve, but, but no way, it's not practical. You know, the Bible says exactly the opposite. It says that if you don't serve others, but you serve yourself, that that's not practical. That that will actually hurt you in the long run. The best place that this is presented to us is in Galatians. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, and the whole crux of Galatians, is that there's all these people that had a big rule book in the law that they had to follow, and now it's gone. Now they don't got a rule book anymore. And they have all this freedom and this liberty, and, and there's this, this group of people that are saying, all right, I don't got any rules, so I ain't got to be nice to you if I don't want to. I'm not going to serve you if I don't want to. I mean, Jesus died for my sins, paid for them. I'm going to heaven. You know, I, I can sin. I can do whatever I want. And there's another group of people that are like, I don't think it works that way. So Paul interjects himself and he says in Galatians 5, verse 13, he says, brethren, you've been called to liberty. So he says, you're free. Yay. Like drop the confetti. That's awesome. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh. So he says, don't take your liberty and use it to indulge your sinful nature don't take your liberty and say you know what i don't have to keep these rules so i'm not gonna i don't have to serve you so i'm not gonna he says no no, no. i want you to do something else he says but serve or by love serve one another he says now that you don't have to you have an opportunity of a lifetime do it freely choose to Not dutifully, not I'm obligated to, not my arms twisted behind my back, but I freely choose to move towards the people that have helped me or hurt me. The people who are in my corner, the people that are not in my corner, my friends and my enemies. I will freely move towards them. I will serve them. And he says, for all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He said, all that stuff you're trying to get right, all that stuff you're trying to do's and don'ts and this and that, it's all summed up in love your neighbor. How? Love them by serving them. That's what it all meant. That's what God was after the whole time. But he says in verse 15, if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. Now, I don't think that's literal when he says you're biting and devouring each other. I don't think they were cannibals. But he's using a figure of speech like a dog fight. He says you cannot do this. You cannot love and serve them. You cannot choose freely to, to put them first and to serve them. And you can fight with each other. Go ahead. You can, you can be the one that, that doesn't give in and beats them down and, and powers up and let your mood control it and, and, and you get your way. But things are going to turn out like you wanted if you do that. You don't have to serve. You can convince and coerce and twist and manipulate. And you can operate your relationships that way you want. And let that self-centered part of you reign and rule. But don't be surprised if you devour each other. Don't be surprised if you destroy each other. What he says is, basically, I'll summarize it. Keep serving only yourself. And eventually you're going to be all by yourself. That's what he says. Don't do it this way. Just try it. Just serve yourself. Eventually, you'll be all by yourself. You're gonna destroy each other. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying it, it, is not, it isn't even practical to not serve other people. This is gonna hurt you. This is gonna ruin relationships. This, this is going to end up being a negative in your life. You're not getting an advantage by putting yourself first all the time. I had a teacher in one of my years of Bible college that used to say you should grab the lowest rung on the ladder and just wait for Jesus to flip it upside down. That was his way of saying just serve and let God take care of the rest and you'll be all right. I'll give you the last excuse. This is because you're a church crowd, I have to give you this one. The spiritual excuse, it's really a, a faux spiritual excuse. It's not, it's not accurate, but it sounds spiritual. The I'll serve when God changes my heart. I'll serve when the spirit leads me. What that means is I'll serve when I feel like it. Okay. That, that's Christian code for I'll do this when I feel like it. I'm just going to attach God to this so that, I, so that it sounds real good and real spiritual. What you find in this text, which is amazing to me, John never broke the text up into chapters. We did that. So if if you were reading this in one sequence, you would get right before this text, chapter 12, verse 27, that Jesus says, now my soul is troubled. And he says, "What shall I say, Father? Save me for this hour. I came into this hour." Jesus says, "I'm about to die. This is why I'm here. But my soul is troubled." If you keep reading after John 13:17, where we left off, just go a couple more verses to 13:21. It says, "When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in his spirit." This this whole passage is bookended by the idea that the reality of Jesus' death is upon him. The reality of of what is happening is upon him, and this is not happy-go-lucky Jesus. Jesus isn't just singing in the rain and having a great time and just, you know, feels happy and his, his emotions are just telling him, serve and, and this, I'm so glad to do this. His soul is troubled. He's in a tough spot right now. He's wrestling with what is about to happen. He knows Judas is going to betray him. And in that moment, he serves. I don't think because he felt like it. I think quite the opposite. But he still makes it a, a, a willful decision. That I'm going to serve. I'm not going to let my emotions guide me. It's not a change my heart, heal my heart, lead me. It's just not. I'm serving. It's what I'm doing. And guys, do, do like I did. Serve. Then he says in verse number 17, after he gets done with his whole lesson, if ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. Now you tell me, does verse 17 say, do them when you're happy? It does not say do them when you're happy. It says you will be happy if you do them, right? It doesn't paint the picture of the emotions leading the way and just I feel like this or I'm being led to. or It doesn't paint that picture at all. It paints the picture of I'm going to make a decision to do this and my emotions are going to tag along behind me. It paints the picture of there's actually happiness and joy when you do just serve and the emotions will take care of themselves. Don't let that govern what what you're going to do. The best illustration I think I could give for this is of a, a lady, a, a princess actually, named Marion Priminger. She lived in the, in the 1900s and she wrote an autobiography before she died called All I Ever Wanted Was Everything, which is a great title. She was a Hungarian aristocrat who literally grew up in a castle. She traveled the world and she writes and says that I purposefully lived above everybody I met. I had more money, I had more prestige, I had more power, and I flaunted it. By the time she was 35, she had burned through a couple marriages and had figured out that her self-serving life wasn't really working all that well. And there was a visiting Nobel Peace Prize winner and theologian, Albert Schweitzer, who was visiting her hometown. And she decided that she wanted to meet him. So she made an appointment, and her appointment with him that day was not some deep you know, lots of questions and Schweitzer being all that interested in her. The appointment was Schweitzer played the organ because he loved to play the organ and he made her turn the pages. That was the appointment. But weirdly, she loved it. So the next day she showed up and she turned the pages again. And the whole time he was in town for a week. She showed up and she turned the pages for him while he played the organ. He left and he went back to actually Africa where, they, where he had started a hospital and he invited her to come work at his hospital. And she accepted and here this princess found herself changing bandages and feeding lepers and cleaning babies, and she loved every second of it. And before she died in 1979, in her autobiography, she wrote this. She said, I thought life was about getting everything, but I have discovered that life is about giving everything. This young woman who, according to her, all I ever wanted was everything, discovered it's better to give. I'm happy am I if I do this. It's more blessed to to give. I will be happy if I serve. And she lived her life that way. This is why Jesus can say, if you lose your life for my sake, you'll actually find it. You lay it down, you gain it. It's, It's really a paradox of the Christian life that the more you serve and the more you give of yourself, the better off you are. I thought I would end this morning by sharing a couple just examples, I think, of this from the past couple weeks from our church. That's not to say that we're perfect at this, but I enjoyed over the past 10 to 14 days receiving these. And this isn't all of them, but it's, it's just a sampling of kind of the good things that sometimes filter into my inboxes. This was uh, uh, from one of our group leaders. They said, I wanted to give you an update on some thoughts our group had for community service. Uh, so-and-so works in the ER at Children's and put me in touch with Kathy, She's the special events coordinator at Children's, and she said that they need some extra donations and some gifts and possibly a couple volunteers for distributing and sorting donations. Below are the details, and it goes on to describe that our group is going to get these gifts together, and we're going to go down, and and after midnight on Christmas Eve, they're going to put them in the kids' hospital rooms so that they wake up to them the next morning. They ended it with, what an opportunity to give and to bless these families. We can share Christ's love this Christmas season. I got an email that uh, said more or less, hey, I wanted to run something past you. We've been thinking about for a few years a prison ministry. If the church were interested in such a ministry, we'd be willing to work on it and to move forward. Some of you went just uh, maybe two weeks or so ago, a week and a half ago, and served at the community, or the Need Cafe in uh, New Kensington. And this was the message we got from the, the organizer of the Need Cafe. It was written to Pastor Rousey. It said, Charlie, I'm writing to thank you for sponsoring our dinner last night and bringing so many volunteers. We served over 425 people last night, which is just amazing. And we're so grateful for your support. Your volunteers were like an army. We've never had a group bring so many to serve, and they did a fantastic job. Not only do they do a great job serving, but they also helped clean up and put everything back in place in the cafe, which really helped our small staff. I got a text this weekend that said, hey, do you have a list of families in the church where kids might not receive any Christmas gifts this season? If that's the case, we'd like to help. I, I read those little samplings to you not to say, toot toot, we're awesome. I, I read that to say, I, I do believe that we have a great church atmosphere and I love that this is a regular part of, of our rhythm and it's part of the fiber of our church. But can you imagine what it would be like if everybody had a mind like that, right? I'm so thankful, some do. But can you imagine what it would be like if everybody did it doesn't have to be big and be small. Take that 30 minutes you were going to watch TV and pray for your friend. Teenagers, go, go sit with that kid by themselves at the lunchroom instead of just hanging out with your, with your little clique all the time. Forgo the new whatever it is and give that money to somebody who could really use it. Be a chaperone on the activity at the school instead of just having a, a, a leisurely weekend at home. If you see a need, meet it. If there's something that needs done, do it. I think the question is, can we pick up our heads and intentionally look for needs? Or is it that things are too mundane and things are too trivial? Things are below us. There's tons of small things you can do. I'll I'll say this. There's tons of small things that have been done for you today. Somebody got here early and unlocked doors and turned on lights and turned on heaters and made sure the church was ready to go. Somebody bundled up and tried to park cars to make sure that people had a smooth experience. Somebody had a smile and greeted and was warm and friendly. Somebody set up the guest center. Musicians and people prepared music to try to bless your heart. Those, those nursery workers are giving of their time to go help your children. Those, uh, those group leaders are preparing a lesson to help you. And on and on I could go. You've, whether you realize it or not, you've probably been served a dozen times today since you've been here. The question is, do we just take it and take it and take it and take it or give it? And Jesus said, not just how everyone else has served you. Look at how I've served you. I clean you up. I wash your feet. I, he would say this, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. I die on the cross. I pay for your sins. I wash you clean. I give you forgiveness. I give you a relationship with the father. I do all this for you. Would you just do as I've done for you and serve other people? I can't tell you the ways that that is, but I can tell you this, that you'll be better off for it. Our church will be better off for it. Your family will be better off for it if you'll do it. So I want you to ask yourself these questions. What if in the midst of conflict and controversy and jockeying for position with whoever it is, you just hauled off and served? You just decide I'm going to serve them. What if the thing that no one wants to deal with and everyone walks by and and says, not my job. You picked up and decided you would do it. What if the people who consistently served you didn't just keep putting into your life, but you turned around and you gave back to them? I dare say that we could all get, I could get a lot closer to the disciples rule where Jesus says, I serve you, I love you, look how I operate and I do unto others as I have done unto you.